session. Podcast Artists. The production of this podcast was made possible by the kind support of the Dorotheum. It's Saturday afternoon, the 5th of March 2022. On the occasion of the exhibition How to Become a Fossil by New York based art collective DIS, we're hosting a conversation with their members, Lauren Boyle at the secession and David Toro and Solomon Chase joining in from New York. I'm Jeanette Pacher, a curator at the secession. Two days ago, we opened your exhibition where you present your new film, Everything But the World. It was completed in 2021. And it's the result of a collaborative process for which you asked a number of colleagues to write, direct, contribute to the art direction and costumes, compose the score, and so on. One of your collaborators, Leela Weinrub, will join us from Los Angeles later on. She's the film's unreliable narrator or shock jock. But before we talk about this new work, let's outline your artistic practice a little bit. Sure. Um, so yeah, we are, you know, we're a collective, we're a, a collaborative project um, with a, you know, kind of a lot of tentacles, um, far reaching in terms of the kind of practice that we have. Um, we began um, over a decade ago uh, in 2010 with a magazine, an online magazine um, that really just like, it just went into everything from fashion, uh, art, culture, technology, labor, politics, you know, you name it. But it was a different kind of magazine for the time, I think, um, in that, you know, we weren't covering, you know, we're not like covering or reviewing or anything. We're just like directly engaging with artists to make work for online, you know. So that was really the basis of the collective um, coming about. So you were practically asking other artists also to contribute to that magazine, right? Mm -hmm. So could you put it as the editors? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We, we mm -hmm. function as editors, you know, yeah, often mm -hmm. in that way. Um, of course, we were always also producing ourselves, right? Because people have been asking me also, mm -hmm. um, what is uh, what does this mean? Does it come from the appendix prefix? This? Right, exactly. Yeah, as... we, we, Solomon, jump in here. I'm here, so it's like... <laughs> yeah, I know. It's weird. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a prefix. It's, it's one that's kind of antagonistic and it turns everything on its head. And that's sort of, I guess, was the mood. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the sort of negative prefix of this was app applicable to, to everything in a way we felt. Um, and it kind of created a sort of critical perspective um, from which to view everything that kind of set a tone for the publication which was digital in nature and really kind of was born from sort of a new circulation of imagery and ideas on the internet. You know, this is before Instagram. This is um, kind of an early internet era. It's interesting that you point out Instagram because um, somewhere I read in one of your interviews uh, that the audience that you're addressing is actually they're too young to use Facebook um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but rather they uh, would be people who are using Instagram or Twitter and so on. So, but at the time when you launched this magazine, Instagram wasn't such a big thing at that uh, moment, as far as I remember. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, at that point, I think there was, you know, um, what was before Facebook? 
Solomon? Um, like uh, MySpace. MySpace, <laughs> yeah. Like people were like kind of closing their MySpace pages, where like which were these kind of like hyper individualized, you know, um, you know, profiles and on social media, and and then hopping on Facebook, which was you know a completely different kind of uh, corporatized machine in a way uh, with this timeline, and it changed how people thought and interacted and things like that so yeah we've been through we've been through a lot of different phases i guess Mm -hmm. uh and you know throughout each of these kind of developments i think we've responded in kind with the kind of work we were producing um you know we we had disimages which was a stock photography website which was designed you know and made by artists you know that was really a statement to the kind of imitative images that we are used to seeing online and how you need you know everyone's just like always referencing counter referencing like the same stuff and uh so we were kind of twisting that and then there was you know disown which was a commentary on like e-commerce and you know art practices and products and luxury items and things like that and now we have Dist. art which is a streaming platform um, for, you know, um, videos, documentaries, films. Um. Yeah, so you, uh, you have been sort of looking into digital culture or be sort of your work is part of digital culture from, from the very beginning, whilst also um, at the same time you have like a practice of working as curators or as a um, collective, which I see in both of your work on your platform, this art, you know, being invited to curate, like, for instance, the Berlin Biennial in 2016, or most recently um, co-curating the Moving Image Festival in Geneva. And what I see also in your own work is that um, you also ask a lot of colleagues to join in. So in a way, how do you understand, like, how do you understand curating? Is it something in parallel with uh, the editorial work that you did in the beginning? Or David Solomon, join in, please, from, from New yeah. York. I mean, I think we've sort of attacked each of these projects in the same way that we, that kind of like stem from the way that we started with this magazine. I think um, working kind of as editors, as collaborators, as artists um, has sort of informed like a method of curating that I think is probably quite different from a kind of traditional curatorial um, method. It's kind of like, it's just intrinsic in how we work that like, you know, it's began as a, you know, collaborative project and we kind of approach everything we do with that same spirit. So anything that we're kind of like interested in doing or trying, we are curious how other people would also respond to those same kind of constraints or, you know, mediums or something. So we're inviting them as well. So like even with the Geneva Moving Image Biennial, um, we knew from the beginning we wanted to make a pilot. We wanted to do, you know, we want, we, we thought of it as a kind of pilot season. Um, mm-hmm. We liked this idea of artists making, you know, film, video, you know, things that could be kind of almost like prompts for something larger or longer, or, you know, um, proofs of concepts or or literally pilots for something that could maybe go mass or something, you know, along mm-hmm. the way. And that's... We often invite artists to kind of take on uh, or to work in ways that maybe aren't necessarily their central um, practices. We had a project producing an album for the Berlin Biennale in which artists collaborative with musicians to create um, songs or um, with just that art, many, many of the people we invite are actually don't actually produce videos regularly. 
Um, so to kind of pre- present these sort of challenges and seeing artists, like I guess, work outside of their comfort zone in, in certain ways. Yeah, and I do notice that um, there are certain artists that you have been working with repeatedly, or who you've whose work you've also been sort of like um, following or including in either the magazine or your the shows that you curated both in Berlin now and um, in Geneva, or who have been uh, have become collaborators for the new film. So. I think that also shows knowing someone's work in a very good way, where you can find uh, new spots to challenge them or to, or that there's an ongoing discussion. Am I right? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think it's really, um, we're not collecting artists or doing these things. You know, we just have, mm-hmm. we have longstanding relationships with people. And of course, we're always looking to expand and, you know, include more people. That's, it's not that, but some of these, you know, personal histories that we have with people, um, let us kind of, I guess, like, I don't know, yeah, probably go outside of our comfort zones or, you know, push each other mm-hmm. as well. As artists, you don't seem to be afraid of addressing like this pop cultural mainstream uh, language as well, like um, talking about a pilot for a TV series or referring to your streaming platform, uh, Dis.Art, as a um, Netflix for artists and so on, which I find is uh, quite strong. Also, um, because reflecting on how things, you know, the people do want to know things, the people are um, interested in expanding their knowledge just the way that um, we do it, maybe it's now, nowadays is changing due to the way our life circumstances are are changing. Maybe it's it's, um, reading, but the first source um, or the first um, trigger to look closer into something might come more from like a a video Mm -hmm. or a song or something like that. yeah, I mean, it's like a gateway. It's a gateway into Wikipedia or to a book or, you know, going further and deeper and, and things like that, for sure. I think that was always kind of um, I, just one aspect of um, starting that platform. Can you tell us briefly how it works? Because I think, um, is there like a turnover every couple of months or so on? So you have uh, currently, um, I don't know, I think there were sort of like five different shows uh, that you're um, hosting. I mean, there's a library of hundreds of of videos um, there now, but we do always launch with, you know, we launch free and open accessible. Mm -hmm. um, And then it does go behind a kind of paywall for subscribers and things like that. And that helps, Mm -hmm. you know, fund the business um, along with uh, universities and libraries and schools, basically, that subscribe to the channel Mm -hmm. for all of their students, which is really cool. And, you know, it's used... It's really used very frequently, like in classrooms, which is funny um, to kind of take on education in this weird, in this kind of weird, strange way. Because they're the pictures that are being made. I mean, they're very unique. It's not boring. It's supposed to be sticky and for people to kind of like latch onto the ideas through the images as well. 
But when I went to the website the day before yesterday, what I was referring to, there are these shows that you're promoting. Yeah, there's always a homepage with like, yeah. and we have, you know, new projects that are released every, yeah. you know, every couple of weeks. What are the next uh, projects coming up uh, onto this art? Oh, that's a great question. Well, actually, we have three more episodes of Circle Time, which was one of the very first mm-hmm. um, series that we developed um, for the for the platform. And Circle Time is, you know, where we we ask thinkers and artists to kind of explain concepts and ideas to to small children that you wouldn't normally find yourself addressing to kids, whether that means like modernism or like the concept of money, things like that. So we have three new episodes of that coming out. And that one was actually like a bigger collaboration because we worked with the director, Terrence Nance. Ryan Tricartan is editing it. It's pretty exciting, that one. So it's a session where showing your new film, Everything But The World, that was completed in 2021. What's the film about? What was the starting idea? And um, how did you structure it? Could you tell us a little bit about this process? The film was conceived as a TV pilot. The foil was kind of a natural history show. And the context was the end of the world. And the critique was progress and property. The way that we went about making it um, was extraordinarily collaborative um, in which we worked with a lot of different artists and writers and thinkers to create these different vignettes. So while we shot and directed many of them, we also kind of farmed out pieces to different collaborators of ours like um, Ryan Tricartan, for example. And we were really trying to think about like not only like how history happened, but like how history is made up and in service of whom. So we you know, really latched onto this idea that we keep telling ourselves the same repetitive stories over and over and over and over again, and that we needed to kind of try something different in how we talk about history, how we got here, and take this like wide, expansive view on things and not limit ourselves to our very small, puny lifetimes in our current understanding. The idea of it being a pilot was important because there's this kind of sense of it being uh, not a final word, not finished film in a way it's like just the beginning of something and it's so there's sort of a conceptual aspect to that as well but the first episode um the castle kind of became a stand-in for private property and subjugation from the Caetano castle that we shot in in Sermonetta which was once possessed by Pope Alexander VI to the legal term castle doctrine a section that was directed by Theo Anthony and it's a term used to justify the defense of one's home to the White Castle scene, which is an existential rant featuring Brontes Purnell as a fast food drive through employee, speaking through the speaker to unsuspecting audiences just going about their day ordering White Castle. I guess we're going we're gonna to call on one of our earliest collaborators on the project, the star of the film, Leela Weinrob, um, who plays the narrator. Leela is a director. Um, she directed uh, Shakedown, Leela, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you, Leela. Great to have you here. You're talking to Jeanette. Jeanette was our curator um, for the exhibition. Hi, Jeanette. And we wanted to bring you in because you have been with this project almost as long as we have, actually. You were with us <sighs> in Cayman for that little residency and the writer's workshop. And yeah. I mean, you popped in um I don't know if you remember, this was like December 2019. So it was like right before the whole world shut down. And we were like in paradise. Yeah. Ish. Ish. 
you know, even from from the very beginning, we did have this idea that we were going to make this like really messed up natural history show with like a lot of different chapters and vignettes and things like that. But and in some ways, it was really specific what we sought out to do. But at the same time, there were like no like railings, you know, to like limit where it could go. There was just like a thousand different directions. Um, and I just wondered if you have any memories from back then or if you're like surprised where it did go or if you think it changed a lot or not at all, actually. I think in the beginning, you were asking people to focus on this idea of like the end, you know, the end of the world. And it was really specific, all the ideas and I guess like opinions about like how we came to be at this place we're at right now were really weighted in a direction, I guess. It seemed like there was a lot of opinions about what happened and exactly where we are right now. We thought we could answer questions and in the end we kind of right. found that there was like there were no answers to be had or something. You no know? questions. Right, yeah. but it's more like a framework of how you view history. So that that was like the beginning, the process. You started um, thinking of making this film by actually meeting with a group of people doing this reading workshop. We went in with a concept. You know, we had like a, we had a, a pretty loose but also specific idea. Right. I think there wasn't like the intention of coming out with a script the way that other writing workshops might mm -hmm. work. I think we were really more mining for, you know, feedback for where we were going. So we got a lot of feedback from really interesting people. And of course, like a ton of ideas were like laid up on, you know, and we, we wrote all those beautiful post-its together. We kind of like workshopped a lot of um, ideas we had had or even terms or concepts that we wanted to include. I think the idea of the end for us was a little bit a way of thinking about things, kind of like to remove ourselves from the story. We start with the premise that we assume that the world has already ended, like and that it will someday for humanity, but it's not the world, it's just our world, like it's our world. So whether that means like human extinction or it means like the end of capitalism or the end of the current order. So there's like a lot of different ways of reading that. And I think that's kind of like where we wanted to start, just to sort of like take uh, the present like out of it and kind of think in a different way, maybe uh, from a non-human perspective as well. Yeah, the narrator, it wasn't clear whether it was some, you know, future AI talking to us or what it was or who's speaking. And at least that's how, how it began. And then it became Leela as kind of a a podcaster. So in a sense, the podcast was is kind of like this sort of like fictional as like often podcasts are this sort of like kind of sci-fi fictional podcast in a way, you know, you don't really quite know like when it is, although it's kind of present day. Exactly. I think in the film, it's this confusion sometimes. Is this somebody speaking from like this present day or is it someone speaking from the future about this present day as the past, which is quite interesting. I remember, Leela, you uh, you kept coming back to the project, and I always mm -hmm. wondered why. You know, you were like willing to give so much of your time to it in terms of just like having conversations with us. I know that you know, of course, at one point we thought maybe you would direct uh, a portion of it, um, a vignette or something like that. And in the end, you just kind of took on this more advisory role, and then you even kind of cast yourself as the narrator, <laughs> um, and that was like a huge, yeah. obviously, shift. But I, but before I talk 
about that <laughs> part of it. I did wonder why you were drawn to the project. The idea of like believing in the end, you know what I mean? That it might be scarier to like continue on with life <laughs> than it is to just decide that there's no options and that there's an end that we live in that's happening now. It's easier to imagine an end to the world than an end to capitalism. It is harder to like imagine a structure to personally function, maybe not even like superstructures, but to personally function in a way that is like imaginative. It's like so hard to even say the words outside of capitalism or whatever because it's too big. But I was like trying to take it on more of like a personal way of like viewing myself and getting to know myself, <laughs> understanding how I've been trained or educated to like function and participate in the world. So, um, and participation is like a big thing in that. It's like I would like to participate in the world and not be mined. One idea that we talked about is just the idea of exploitation as our main way of collaboration. So just even participating in your project in this very like organic over time kind of way is like a different way of just like living and participating and things. You know what I mean? Like things that give me anxiety are just exploitation as collaboration. Like you're excited about a new place or a new thing, but we kind of participate with it in the ways that we've are always participated with each other and not to say that it's always negative you know and that uh, exploitation is always negative you know like negative maybe that's also why I was like really interested in participating in this because it's ideas that I find central in terms of living they're not theoretical it's workshopping practicing how to live in a way I mean, I think one of the one of the things that we incorporated into also your grip was something that you brought up in an early meeting which was about toilets Oh, yeah. In terms of thinking about technologies and the way they kind of structure and create a dependence on a system, thinking about like something as simple as the toilet and how actually that creates this massive structure where kind of someone wanted that to exist was a really good example in a really basic way. One of the best pieces of advice, Leela, that I feel like you gave us mm-hmm. while we were making the film was like this idea of simply like announcing what you're going to see. You know, like it's not, it's kind of counterintuitive in film. It's usually like show, don't tell. But with a script like this, that's like so expansive, you made a really good point, I think, which was like, you need to tell them, just say it, say it out loud. And then we got lines like, this is the story of what happens after your property and after your progress, it's over, you know? And it's like, that sets us up you know, to receive the information. After that, it becomes much more obvious why we're saying things. And the narrator just became unextractable from the film. I mean, really like the glue throughout, it really sets the time, it keeps the pace, all that stuff. And I feel like you were like the person who was really pushing for that. Right. I mean, I really um, like essay films. You know, I sometimes get bothered with the idea that in documentary or even experimental pieces that the creator doesn't have an opinion. Traditionally in documentaries, like you go through all of the like subject matter and then like in the end, they're like, but who knows what the answer is? Who knows what's going to happen? And they kind of just dither and fade out. And it's the original interest in the subject matter is also the author's opinion on 
what's happening and what's going to happen. You know, for essay films, I want to get to a conclusion. Like I want to spend time with something and I want to be changed. I want to know through watching this how this affects me. (laughs) You know, like how do I get to experience it, you know? And then like the traditional structure of like an essay is like, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. In that way, it makes you have an opinion about something too. You know, you can't like be vague about like your intentions of the piece. Maybe what you guys feel like there was vagueness about the intentions of the piece or did it help you say, okay, this is what we're going to say. We're going to say it in a sentence. Well, for sure. I think we did one table read. And then after that, we were like, oh, we have to change the narrator's tone. I think we knew pretty much after that first table read. I mean, Solomon, did you feel the same way? We were just like, yeah, it's not right. You know, like. (laughs) The narration previously was beautifully written by Ava Tomapule Garcia. And um, but it wasn't coming from anyone in particular. You know, there wasn't like sort of character development around whoever this was. So it yeah. was like it was like nobody yet, and I think mm-hmm. once that we found who it was, that it was this kind of podcaster character played by you, like it, the yeah. entire kind of personality and like what that character would say shifted. And it was also like it was so important suddenly like, that you know our narrator is flawed. It comes from a perspective. All stories come from a perspective. Actually, right. this is our perspective. We don't get to be like puppet master. You know, like we are making a film. You know what I mean? Like, and we kind of put ourselves yeah. in it. Where in the beginning we were really like trying to be outside of it. And I think, like, I mean, I just like so identify with your reading <laughs> of the character. You know, I was just thinking that it would be really funny and cool to have a version where it was like all of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should mention. Since we're talking about that tone that, you know, after we decided that you were going to be playing the role of the narrator podcaster, Mm -hmm. that we brought in Casey Jane Ellison, a comedian and writer, and also an old friend and collaborator of all of ours to kind of like rewrite the script in your voice. And that's where we got things Mm -hmm. like daddy and stuff like that, which was just (laughs) had no place in the film before that. That was like very funny and hard to perform. Um, (laughs) We got to hear you sing daddy. <laughs> it was a much more serious tone before Casey came in. But, you know, she synthesized a lot of the meaning in a way right. that was a lot um, easier to digest and kind of brought this humor that was like already there, but maybe not right. explicit. I think what she really like got to um, like pinpointed, you know, is that like when you're talking about all of this stuff, they're really like deep, expansive ideas that just create anxiety because they're about change that when you're talking about that with other people, it sounds hysterical. <laughs> and like that, that it's because you are, you're in like a state of like hysteria, you know? And like, so there was like, she was able to like synthesize that and also make it funny, um, which is kind of the only way you can sit with a person that's like freaking out like that is that if they're... I mean, to me, it's someone who hasn't been in that process, but sort of like saw the f- the the film and your role as the narrator. I think it's so helpful to rewriting it to have like this humorous aspect. Helped me a lot to connect the different parts because they are quite diverse, like being directed by different people also, but still to get that underlying tone that runs throughout the whole 
film then? I mean, just thinking of, you know, jumping from the first scenes filmed in the, I think, Utah desert to, um, you know, where you have um, Sapien, this character walking with this body painting by uh, Donna Huanca, imitating early man sort of walking um, to this completely absurd image or, or scene in the uh, desert in Kuwait that, you know, it sort of like just throws you back to what mankind is doing today and thinks, I don't know, it's a cool progress that we're doing. And the the narrator's voice, um, you know, when they're blowing around the sand, which um, is just so stupid and senseless and a waste of time and energy. And I think that your voice, uh, Leela, as a narrator, just brings that all together in a good way. I always um, was interested in the origin of that image, the leaf blower in the desert. Isn't, isn't there an or, origin story for that image? Solomon might remember it differently, but I remember this as being something that just was really important to Marco. Like Marco had this vision um, because I think he witnessed some people in Cayman Islands actually blowing the sand off of the parking lot. It just seems so ridiculous. And of course, in the States, like leaf blowers are like really like, you know, you see them everywhere. That's like total like noise pollution. It's ridiculous. It just yeah. feels like we're trying to control our environment to this place that's just absurdity. It's, it's like you know? totally dumb. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm like one of those people that calls 311 on leaf blowers. <laughs> <laughs> it's just purely that sound in connection with this rootless activity that for who, you know? But we have been talking a lot about the movement of sand, like sand stolen from somewhere or sold to somewhere to become a beach at another right. place. So there's kind of a compliment, the sand and the leaf floor. And just, and just it became like a kind of a symbol for us. We had talked about it a lot in the writer's room, like Rob Horning had this whole idea of two people blowing leaves at each other image. And we thought that Kuwait or like the desert was the perfect place for this where there like are no leaves at all and and this like kind of highway in the desert the artist that uh shot that he shot it remotely none of us were actually like present for that shoot day um his name is abdullah al matori he's awesome and he cast two guys and um we gave him the script and we translated it into arabic and yeah he directed and shot that whole piece and it came back you know better than we could have ever expected that was definitely a highlight for me, too. In it, they're kind of describing sort of like Western apocalyptic fantasies in movies. Yeah, they're casting doubt, mm -hmm. basically. Those lines were originally written for the narrator, but they just hit really differently when they come from another character. So like a lot of the text actually got rewritten or, you know, redescribed once we had figured out what like what we were actually going to be shooting. So you scripted it out and then you handed it over like the different parts of chapters to someone else to direct it. And then they worked over the script and then played it back to you. And then that one was a clear script, but it was translated into Arabic. And so it was adapted based on the needs of language. But in other cases, like with Ryan Jacartan and Lizzie Fitch, it was this idea how to become a fossil and this kind of concept of prepping for death rather than life. They're sort of like preppers, their existence to be continued as a fossil. But then uh, Ryan like fully rescripted that in his own style and it's completely different than the original 
grab. Okay, because I mean, that's so much their own work that I wasn't quite sure if you just sort of said, okay, this is the idea for this chapter, go on and write it. Pretty much. I mean, yeah, we had, you know, we knew what we were trying to get out of it. We knew he was a YouTube tutorial. We knew it was like this kind of prepper and he was like a weird survivalist, survivalist in like a whole new sense of the word. And then he just like ran with it with Lizzie, you know? Yeah. And the same in the case with Brontes. Purnell, who, who uh, wrote and performed in the White Castle as a White Castle worker. There was an original script, but he developed it and took it in his own direction. There was a direction, but then putting it in your own words and bringing your own ideas to it. Because we weren't working with actors, you know? I mean, it was a way of getting something really real out of people by making it theirs as well. And obviously having connections on the subject matters with them and then being able to have like conversations and then they can just kind of like embody and then add their own text and in their own words, perform it naturally. You know, if we were to do it again, I would do that again. It's also interesting in terms of thinking of a shared authorship. You are the authors of the whole film as such, but each of the chapters has their own authors and co-directors. I think it's kind of typical, though, for, for TV and film to have that. That's why the credits roll for so long, because there are so many people that had to be part of it to make it happen. Sorry, this is like kind of a random story, but like I was um, just sitting like in my um, kitchen and there was this whole situation and I live in LA and there was somebody hit a car on the street and then um, tried to not show their insurance card to the other person and all like hell broke loose and there was a helicopter like circling over, there's like little mini army was called. There was 14 cop cars that had like AR-15 rifles, I don't know, big ass guns. It just turned into like a little mini war outside for like um, two people that were in an argument about like insurance cards. Stop it. And I was like, oh, this is the this is the level that the city is revving on all the time. Is that like, and it just becomes can get really dangerous really fast. And that we're living in this like kind of suppressed way where you kind of you understand that you know that that things can get really dangerous really fast you know anyway so like i identified with the narrator the most the narrator is being like basically what's poking at people you know kind of like poking at us where even are you (laughs) like where are you even existing right now and oh kind of like insulting people insulting people into being like are you gonna say something different (laughs) you know (laughs) like do you have a you have like a different way of explaining like what we're doing. Is this anything other than suicide? How do you see it? That death drive? I don't feel fucking suicide at all. But you you look like you are. <laughs> you know. Um, I really identified with that, yeah. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> when you guys were making this, I thought that someone whoever you cast was gonna be like a David Attenborough kind of person like walking through nature, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like the city. I think it was really important it wasn't a British voice. Do you want to talk about who you originally wanted to cast? Erica Badu, Rosie Perez. Yes. We always imagined someone, the narrator, well, I mean, I did, going into song. So, oh like, God. for a moment, there was this idea of casting a singer with a good speaking voice, you know? Brittany, ask about me. Ask about me, Brittany. Can <laughs> <laughs> you send it to her? We have you can to send it to her and be like, look, we've been thinking about you a lot. 
I mean, that part was really geniusly written by Casey. Weaving Britney Spears with the script um, works perfectly. Yeah, it built up that whole scene. So when it happened, it was like, wham. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, Leela. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you. you. Thank you, Mark, you guys. Thanks, Leela. Yeah, thank you. Um, I can't wait to see a second episode, actually. Um, no, I think the, the the film is really fantastic, and I would um, recommend anyone to come and see it here at the session, or if you're presenting it anywhere else, um, I think it's on uh, film festivals, like documentary film festivals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to go yeah. from here. I think we're, we're going to hit um, CPH Docs in Copenhagen, uh, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. It's the first time it'll be in an audience um, in a theatrical setting. And I'm curious to see, um, uh, to you know, to observe how people will uh, respond also, because that was uh, what you completed or closed with. Um, uh, the White Castle rant uh, going on in front of Secession Building uh, mm. in the outdoor installation that you did. Um, yeah, and to let you know how how that survives c- survives. Yes, <laughs> the, the the public and the weather and the yeah the mm-hmm. elements and things. Thank you, Solomon and David, for joining from New York. All right, thank you later. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye bye. The production of this podcast was made possible by the kind support of the Dorotheum.